Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined today by my co-host, also an editor-at-large, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening back to an interview that I did with Claudio Lemnitz. Yeah, I couldn't join you for that interview, but I'm curious to hear more about it. I feel like I've been very interested in the Jewish population in South America, so this sounds right up my alley. Can you tell me more about Claudia? Sure. I, I too, um, I went to Argentina about a decade ago and I thought, oh, this is amazing. Like, yeah, South American Jews, warm weather, like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what more do you want? <laughs> I mean, you have warm weather in Israel, but it seemed exciting to find this whole other diaspora that I hadn't realized existed. And Jews speaking Spanish was very exciting to me too. So yeah, Claudio's family originated in Eastern Europe and also Germany and both sides of his family made their way to South America at some point and also went to Israel. And um, the book, he is an anthropologist and the book is a very, very detailed retelling of the stories of his family, but with his own interjections and, you know, history and lots of other history tied in there as well. And it's just a really fascinating um, tale and a great read. It was a wonderful book and I, I like to get in touch with my own Jewishness sometimes. So that, this helped me. Well, I try to avoid mine as much as possible, <laughs> um, but I'm still interested in hearing this interview. So let's get to it. Great. I'm excited to be speaking with Claudio Lemnitz today. Claudio is a professor of anthropology at Columbia University and the author of a number of books about the culture and politics of Mexico, which is where he grew up. These include Death and the Idea of Mexico and the Return of Comrade Ricardo Flores Magón. He's also a columnist for the Mexico City newspaper La Jornada. He's joining us to speak about his new book, Nuestra America, My Family and the Vertigo of Translation, which traces his family's place in the Jewish diaspora of Eastern Europe, specifically the former region of Bessarabia, in the early decades of the 20th century, to their migration to South America just before World War II. Lumnitz focuses most closely on his maternal grandfather, Misha Adler, a scholar, editor, and publisher who is closely associated with a number of revolutionary cultural and political movements in both Europe, Peru, Colombia, and Israel. The book is also a much larger and depth interrogation of the history and politics that precipitated his family's migration across the world and a consideration of the universal struggles of marginalized people everywhere. Thanks so much for joining us, Claudio. Thanks. Now we could start by talking about languages. I was really struck by how many languages your grandfather spoke in his town and the kind of what each represented. I wondered if you could just go through the languages he spoke and tell us kind of the cultural value of each. Both he and my grandmother spoke eight, eight, nine languages each, which is a lot. <laughs> and in fact, it's an issue that I had to face right at the start of the book because it's a book that I wanted very much to write, but that at a certain from the standard of scholarly work, I really shouldn't have undertaken because I don't speak half of the languages that I would have needed to, <laughs> to speak or read at least 
to be able to do this in a responsible way. So the book, you know, gets started with a reflection on language and also on why people, both my grandparents came from small shtetls, really, but not super small ones, but let's say small cities, very small cities or large provincial towns, large-ish. And from a very backward region of Europe, Bessarabia, or my grandmother's case, Ukraine, but right across the river from Bessarabia. And nonetheless, they had this kind of cosmopolitan side, which one associates in the first place with language, right? And they spoke all those languages in part, they had some linguistic talent, both of them, but in part because of where my grandfather was born in a town, Novasulitsa, which when he was born, which in 1905, the town was on the border between the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The town was literally crossed by the border, like Nogales today, you know, where you have part of it in Sonora and part of it in Arizona. So Noasulitsa was crossed by a border, so they, it had two high languages, the Russian and German, Russian and the, the German that was spoken in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then they were Jews, and so they spoke Yiddish at home, and the high language for the Jews in terms of a study was the Bible, and in other words, Hebrew. So that already tallies four. And then they were oriented to scholarship, so they studied, they had to study. French was kind of expected at that time, and English a little bit too, if you were interested in scholarship. And they emigrated to South America, so they learned Spanish. And, you know, so it starts adding up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, I read in the book that Esperanto was developed by a Polish Jew mm -hmm. around the turn of the century. I thought it was very interesting, the role that an idea of a universal language could play for a people who really didn't have, you know, one place or country to be, you know, what the hopes mm -hmm. of Esperanto could be for the Jews in particular. Mm -hmm. And even the resuscitation of Hebrew as a spoken language, maybe you could talk a little bit about what the aim of Esperanto or even, you know, trying Hebrew. to implement Hebrew again mm -hmm. as a spoken language was for Jewish people at this time. That's right. I mean, basically the Jews of Russia, the Russian Empire and Poland, much of Poland was at different points part of Russia and it were moved back and forth between Russia and Poland. They were in a very oppressed situation through the 19th century and into the 20th century. These were the last Jews to be emancipated in the sense of the last Jews to gain citizenship rights were the Jews of Russia, of Poland, and of Romania. And, you know, in Russia, they were emancipated with the Russian Revolution, 1917, and Romania a little bit later, you know, 1918-19, right after the end of the First World War. So these were, these Jewish people at the end of the 19th century in these areas were very interested in the problem of belonging since they didn't have citizenship and nationalism at that time was a very big thing and nationalism in Eastern Europe was a very big thing. So some of them turned to Yiddish, which was the vernacular. That was the language that was spoken by the Jews in Eastern Europe for the most part. There were a few Ladino speakers, but the vast majority was Yiddish speaking. And um, so one of the movements involved kind of making Yiddish into a high language. And so you started getting Yiddish literature, printing in Yiddish, Yiddish poetry, history writing in Yiddish. So the creator of Esperanto, for instance, was a linguist who studied Yiddish in the first place, I mean, as a linguist. And so you have this Yiddishism, which we see in the U.S., because a lot of Yiddish publication, the New York became a major center of Yiddish publishing, like Buenos Aires. These were like two 
big centers in, in the Americas. So that's one trend, which was a trend to formalize and give higher status to Yiddish, which had been a kind of language of the home, uh, not, not a high culture language. The Hebrew was, okay, it was more to do with the notion of recovering a shared language of all the Jewish people. So, for instance, the author of the first sort of modern Hebrew dictionary had the idea of, who emigrated to Palestine in the late 19th century, had the idea of using Hebrew as a Jewish national language because he was a doctor who studied in Paris, was a Yiddish speaker, made friends with a Sephardic Jew who couldn't speak Yiddish, and they used then their Hebrew from the Bible to communicate with one another. So Hebrew became a kind of more utopian language insofar as it involved an idea of Jewish unity beyond the sphere of Yiddish speakers that was dominant in Eastern Europe. And then Esperanto is a sort of an idea that is more universalist. The Zamenhof, linguist who was from Bialystok, uh, had sort of combined what he saw as the main languages of the world, quote, the world, and meaning kind of most European, Eurasian world. So they were Latinate languages, Germanic languages, and Slavic languages, and created something kind of a little bit like what Proto-European had been. In other words, the language from which you know, most European and some South Asian, Central Asian languages came from. You had also the idea of using language to transcend racial and national hatred, which was so big in that part of the world. Yeah, there's an intellectual curiosity kind of built in to sounds like your grandfather's family and the Jewish tradition, but at the same time, it, I think all those languages must express an insecurity, which is that who knows where you're going to have to go, you don't really belong where you live. And even, I think you write that Jews were granted citizenship in Romania by 1920. Yeah. But very yeah, very late. But even then, your grandfather felt like it was time to leave yep. where he was from. <laughs> and so, so tell us, and he initially wanted to immigrate to Israel, to Palestine, which didn't happen. So tell us how he ended up in Lima. Well, first of all, interestingly, the movement into citizenship, Jewish emancipation, which is a movement that, I mean, starts with the French Revolution in the 1790s. France is the first country to emancipate the Jews. But it, it's a long process that goes, courses the whole of the 19th century. Often, this process of gaining citizenship coincided with the um, exacerbation of anti-Semitism because Jews, once emancipated, were free to compete for a set of jobs that they weren't eligible for before citizenship. In the case of Romania, which was a country that was not didn't have a lot of industry, so it had a small middle class, a large peasantry, an old aristocracy, old landed aristocracy. So this middle class relied a lot both on government jobs and on sort of liberal professions, you know, doctors, lawyers, this kind of thing. And so the emancipation of Jews intensified the anti-Semitism of that middle class and contained. The Jews were more educated than the medium in Romania for reasons that I don't really know, but it's a fact. They were also a more urban population because there had been all kinds of restraints toward owning land. So it was a, the Jews were an urban population that tended to read and write more. They, were, they tended to apply themselves in school quite a lot and excel very often. And so all of a sudden, emancipation was 
you know, a problem because they're really going to take over a lot of jobs in a scarce job environment. So you get intensification of anti-Semitism. And that's actually not unique to Romania. That's quite common in the history of anti-Semitism in 19th century Europe. So my grandfather left in that context, but also prompted too, because by the fact that Bessarabia, the region that he was from, after World War I, was transferred from the Russian Empire, which ceased to exist with World War I, as did the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So the two empires that his towns sat on both disappeared with World War I. And so the whole region, Bessarabia, was annexed to Romania. And Romania was very nervous about the loyalty of these new territories that had been annexed and that had belonged to Russia. And so they used uh, military conscription, and especially military conscription of Jews, as an instrument to try to gain control over the new territories. So my grandfather and many a number of his mates that were around the same age, draft age, let's say, were essentially draft dodgers. They, they went to Peru because Peru was offering a program to try to attract European migrants, and they were so desperate to get them that they didn't even care if they were Jews. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Sorry to put it bluntly, but that's what it was. It says you had a not only in Peru but all over Latin America a very racist, eugenicist, actually inspired set of immigration policies, and the Peruvians were looking for more Europeans because they had received a big influx of Chinese in the 19th century, and that was considered a bad thing from a eugenics point of view. And so, when your grandfather immigrates to Peru, you know, he goes from being a Jew to being a European. Yeah. His status changes, but of course, because as you write, he was already beginning to be involved in socialist politics, and he seems to have been a very thoughtful humanist man. He sees connections between the native population of Peru and the Jews in Europe. So This is one of the originalities of my grandfather. I think it made a lot of sense, actually which was that he saw the connection between Jewish emancipation and uh, indigenous communalism and the transformation of the cultures and nations of South America. So when he moved there, he became involved with socialist politics. Deeply involved, yeah. And tell us about that and what did he imagine? You know, you don't talk too much in the book about how the native population saw these European agitators trying to organize with them and help them? You know, what was the response of the native Incans and what, what kind of claims to citizenry did they have themselves? I don't know the answer to all that, but what is the case is my grandparents became a part of the close circle of a great figure, famous figure in South America called Jose Carlos Mariategui, who was the founder of the first socialist party that became the communist party after his death in 1930, he died very young, unfortunately. So Mariategui was really the leading light in this movement, and his view was that, quote, Peru needed to be Peruvianized. What he meant by that is that Peruvian nationalism, a sense of nation, had been created kind of with a giving the back to the native population, which in the 1920s was four-fifths of the population of Peru. So his movement involved an attempt to rethink the nation, starting from indigenous society and from his analyses, which was Marxist analysis, of, quote, the Indian problem, 
which involved understanding the problem of land ownership and the problem of kind of survival of quasi-feudal modes of caste organization and exploitation. So that's where these folks were intervening. But I think that they did have a real connection to at least a segment of the people that they were that they felt were providing the energy for the whole reconceptualization, in part because you were beginning to get some migration into Lima from and into the cities, the main provincial cities from the countryside, so indigenous migration. And you were starting to get also a working class, which was in part a native working class. And so there they did have very serious connections, union connections and the like. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Claudio Lemnitz, author of Nuestra America, My Family and the Vertigo of Translation. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Lauren Euler on the line with us today. Lauren's new novel is called Fake Accounts, and she is calling us to give us a book recommendation. Lauren, what book are you going to recommend? Thank you. I'm going to recommend Mating by Norman Rush, which is, I think, going to have its 30th anniversary of its publication this year. And thankfully, there's a small sort of like cult fan club of Norman Rush forming, I think, in the literary world and on Twitter. So if you want to join the Norman Rush hive, as they say, uh, you're always more than welcome. Tell me how you discovered the book. How did I discover the book? I think I just heard about it. It's very boring. Heard about it from a friend of a friend and and started reading it. And what's really great about it is the voice that's narrated by a female graduate student in Botswana who is sort of wayward, but very intelligent, very funny, uh, very sort of idiosyncratic, but but very smart, very self-conscious. And she sort of falls in love or and or latches on to this dynamic figure in Botswana named Nelson Denoon and pursues him across the desert uh, in order to be his his girlfriend or his partner, basically. And it's just really funny. I mean, it has so much about politics. It has so much about romance. It has so much about uh, Africa and white people in Africa in particular, and sort of do-gooding white people in Africa and, and socialism. And, and it's just wonderful and has so much texture. And there's actually an Easter egg in Fake Accounts, if you happen to read it, that is a mating Easter egg. And if you look at the acknowledgments, you find, you figure out what it is, because I acknowledge it. But uh, you can also look out for it if you want to. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. Okay, will you tell us the name of the author again and the title of the book? Uh, The book is Mating by Norman Rush. It sounds really good. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you. We've been speaking with Lauren Euler. Her new novel is called Fake Accounts. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Claudio Lumnitz, author of Nuestra America, My Family and the Vertigo of Translation. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the idea of tradition versus traditionalism. You know, this is something that your grandfather thought about, and I think it speaks so much to me also to the present day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, the whole book does and the whole story does. And I think the 
and maybe I can ask you a little bit later, but you know, this, this idea of universality of, um, you know, identifying someone else's struggle and trying to almost to see things less from a point of, you know, nationalism and more of um, just through a humanistic guise, of course, you know, resonates so strongly today. And what you talk about in terms of tradition and traditionalism is kind of part of that. So maybe you could just go into that idea a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, here again, we're in the terrain of Mariategui, this this wonderful uh, and great thinker and figure, cultural figure, political figure. Uh, Mariategui felt that Tradition was a great thing. And this set him apart from a number of Marxists, by the way, and, and, and got him close to others, but and not everyone on the left agreed with this. He felt that tradition was something that was a great and that needed, but in order to be great, it was alive. And so, for instance, for him, there was a live tradition that he felt was connected to myth, to ritual, to religion in the, in the Andes, in, in Peru. And that that was alive, and that that was the place where the society would be transformed, where a revolution would come from. Uh, whereas traditionalism, he thought, was a reactionary force always. He felt the uh, traditionalism was uh, the desire to maintain certain customs, maintain certain habits, keep them in the face of change and in the face of transformation. So, for instance, for him, the story of the Incas and the, the na- native history from the pre-Columbian period forward was, in his terms, the root of the movement, but not its program. In other words, he did not; he wasn't someone who was trying to reestablish, uh, in, for example, native uh, communalism or native traditionalism. He felt native traditionalism was alive, and if it was alive, it was tradition, not traditionalism, and it was going to change. And that's okay. But traditionalism was what he felt had kind of sickened uh, a Peruvian society, and in particular Lima society, which he felt was deeply attached to its colonial roots, uh, to trying to preserve its glories of the you know the 17th century and the 16th century, etc. And this he thought was something that needed to be attacked. I think that for my grandfather it was a similar kind of thing. My thought, my grandfather was not a religious Jew by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but he did feel that what was there, you know, that the Bible and all these other kinds of texts and moments in Jewish history were uh, important to the extent in which, A, they showed potential in the past, they were historical achievements, and B, to the extent to which they were alive, but not in the sense of some, um, some need to preserve them or to recreate them indefinitely. So was he, I don't know at the time, but later in life, did he ever feel conflicted about the state of Israel? My grandfather was a Zionist. He was, I think, in the 20s, 1920s when, and 30s, when he was a communist, he, his idea was that they would be able to create a kind of a Jewish Soviet, is the way he put it in his writing, a Jewish Soviet in Palestine. He was more favorable to the establishment of a Jewish state than, say, Mariategui, to whom he admired so much, because he came from a region that is from Romania, and that whole strip, let's say, goes what was what had been 
the Pale of Settlement in the old Russian Empire, where the population was truly menaced. They didn't have much place to go. And in fact, by the 30s, when you have fascism rising, it's clear that there's a that there's a genocidal danger there. It's perfectly clear to him, but it's not just, it's not like he was some kind of whiz who figured this out. Anyone living there knew that. And Mariategui was also uh, conscious of this, actually, and in that sense did support the creation of a state of Israel, although not to the exclusion of Palestinians. That's what it was, and the, the party that he belonged to when they emigrated, he, they emigrated to Israel in 1949, and then left in 1955. And uh, the party that they belonged to initially had been an integrist party. They, it was a party that wanted, you know, it was a labor party that wanted a Jewish and Palestinian participation. To the extent in which these folks were vanguardists, a lot of these communists were vanguardists. I mean, they, they did feel that a, a Jewish presence in the Middle East was a progressive one. That is, that, they, that this, was, this was a transformative thing that was modernizing presence and modernizing was a good thing then, you know, for, in the vocabulary of the left and uh, was seen as an unequivocally good thing for the most part. But I don't really know whether in the later period, in the 60s, he died in 1970, what his take was, because my grandfather did become disillusioned with communism uh, in the 40s, uh, um, once uh, after the Second World War, once uh, the fate of his town and his region under the Soviet Union became known, um, he distanced himself from his connection to the Soviet Union, which had been important. He directed the, the Institute for Soviet Colombian Relations uh, in Bogota. So he, he had been close to the Soviet Union and that was severed. And I think that it's possible that that might have made him in some way more nationalistic, but I'm not sure that that's the case. Mm-hmm. As your grandfather you know, lived, he was kicked out of Peru for publishing um, a political magazine. And then he moved to Colombia. And as he lived in South America, did his status as a Jew, did he become more of a Jew than a European over time? Did anti-Semitism creep into South America as well with so many Jews um, immigrating there? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, when he was kicked out in 1930, he was kicked out in a bizarre it was a bizarre kind of political maneuver by a president, President Augusto Leguia, who was kind of toppling in a shaky grounds after the Wall Street crash in 1929. And so the start of the Depression kind of prompted his ousting uh, from power through a military coup. But before he fell, the idea that his problems were stemming from a, quote, Jewish communist plot. And that's why my grandfather was, was thrown into prison and then uh, my grandparents were then exiled. But, uh, and this communist plot was meant to be supposedly being hatched out of Jose Carlos Mariati's house. So it's, it's an odd moment because it's a moment where somebody in Peru kind of cries out and anti-classically anti-Semitic strategy, but in a society that was not yet really particularly anti-Semitic. And I don't think that it, it worked that well. Um, a, still, he did live that. They did, um, both of them, live that and suffer that because they had to leave Peru 
which was a country that they actually loved, and go to Colombia, and which turned out to be a, a more difficult environment for them to, to adapt to. So yes, there was that. And then in Colombia in the 1930s and 40s, um, I, I would say, and throughout South America, I would say yes, that the Jewish um, the Jewish versus a simple European identification became more prominent because of the fight against fascism and its urgency for the Jews. The Jews were conscious that they were trying to they were trying to get as many people out of Europe as possible and into countries that had immigration policies that barred Jews from going in, right? In the case of Colombia, they barred Jewish immigration in right after Kristallnacht. So in some way, I would say yes. Uh, during the Second World War and even in the 30s, the Jewish aspect became in some way more urgent and more necessary to uphold publicly. You know, the, the book is so interesting because it, it the way it's structured and told, it just kind of continuously ripples with with stories and information and you know the stories of so many of your family members and and histories um what was the compelling incident that made you want to devote you know I'm, i i assume this has been almost a you, you wrote you started in 2012 so almost a decade mm -hmm. of, of your life to working on this story and does your role as an anthropologist you know, change the way you approach this material at all? Or how does that come into play? Yeah, I mean, at a certain level, it's, uh, I was interested in my family, my family history, the way mo many, many people are. I, I think that it's not, there's nothing peculiar about that. And at a certain point, I started uh, taping interviews a little bit with my, with my mother and with my, some of my uncles, just because I didn't want some of this material to be lost to the family but I wasn't really thought about writing a book and then I kind of backed off and I didn't think I had anything significant or important to say um then what sparked it was something that's kind of bizarre because it and it's actually not in the book <laughs> uh, which is that in in 2012 2000, uh, there was in an anthropology convention in in Vienna a famous uh, anthropologist from Colombia, Gerardo Reichel Dolmatov was his name, was outed by another Colombian archaeologist as having been a member of the SS in the 1930s in, in Germany. And this guy was, what was interesting to me about the story, I wrote a piece for my, the paper that I write for in Mexico, La Jornada, on this when it happened, was that Reichel emigrated to, to Colombia in 1939. And he was very close to a famous um, French ethnologist, Paul Rivet, who was also a socialist and uh, head of the anti-fascist league in Paris before emigrating to the Americas during the war. And my grandfather had been a student of Paul Rivet in the 30s in Paris. After he was exiled, after he and my grandmother were exiled from Peru, they went to Paris and he studied under Rivet, who was the founder of the Musée de l'Homme in, in Paris, and a famous specialist of uh, Native Americans. Um, I was interested in the fact that, how, you know, what, what, how is it possible that you have these two figures, one of whom was from the margins of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, my grandfather, Jewish and a communist, and the other from the heart of the, uh, uh, from Austria, 
from Salzburg, from an aristocratic family, was a Nazi and became a member of the SS. How did they both end up uh, being interested in Native America, South America? I thought I was going to write a book about that, uh, which is a rather academic uh, topic. And not at all personal, like my book is, is a, a very personal reflection uh, on the family, on my family, and on myself to some degree. Um, I started like that, and then in part I got rid of it because of the language issue that you brought up a while ago. That is, um, all of a sudden I realized, well, I can't really write about this as an academic, but because I don't have four of the languages, I speak four languages, I'm, I was missing four languages. And so I have to write this in a different way. And um, to your other question about whether the fact that I'm an anthropologist and an historian influenced the way I wrote it, well, definitely, because I think that anthropology is built on a kind of intersubjectivity that is all over the book. I'm constantly um, kind of doing fieldwork in my family history in some way. And then the historian's um, habits are also there because I had to I had to lean on what I could to be able to put the story together. It's a very hard story to put together, challenging because of the movement. I mean, it's uh, and, you know I I am not a Jewish historian. I had to learn a whole lot about Jewish history to be able to write this. I, you know, I've never even been to Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, so I had to reconstruct all that. But even in Latin America, you know, you know, although I know much more about that because of my training and my work, um, you know, I didn't know what uh, the Colombian countryside in the 1940s was like. Or, and I had to reread some things that I did think I knew, like uh, Mariategui and the 1920s vanguardism of uh, Lima and other South American capitals in order to think about them from the angle of my grandparents. Um, so it was an adventure. I mean, it was, it was actually, you know, enthralling to, to write. But I have to say I was, to some extent, freed from some of the strictures of my disciplines because I don't really have the credentials to write the book from the, that point of view. Mm-hmm. And eventually, or at least, you know, you grew up mostly in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. To a large degree, yeah. I was born in Chile. But I grew up, uh, I arrived in Mexico as a boy, yeah. And your, and your mother, who had spent you know, time also all over the world, lived there with you as well. Yeah, my parents. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, and your father, who also, whose family also had a, you know, also came from Eastern Europe and mm-hmm. moved to South America. I, I wonder if your family ever kind of settled in a nationalist identity any of them because there was so much traversing of, of culture, of language. How do you think they saw themselves later in life? And also, you know, how do you kind of interpret your own identity at this point? I think there, there have been, there, there are different strategies and different kind of options, existential options and different members of the family. My father was a German Jew. He was born in, in Cologne in, in Germany and they emigrated at first to in, right after the election of Hitler, they emigrated first to, to, to Brussels and then from Brussels to Chile in 1938. My father was also a, a very good linguist, actually. Um, spoke a lot of languages and spoke them very well. Wrote them often very well. 
For my part, I kind of, I won't say entirely renounced uh, national identity entirely, but to some extent. I mean, I felt that when at a certain point in my youth, I felt that my, although I was a, I belonged to a certain era of kind of Latin American fervor uh, associated with a kind of folklorist movement, uh, the new, you know, the, a little bit like uh, in uh, the U.S., uh, something like. Uh, What's his name? Guthrie and mm-hmm. uh, that kind of Woody Guthrie and that kind of thing. We have Violeta Parra and this kind of movement that was associated the tra- with the left. Tradition versus traditionalism, it seems. Again, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> yes. And I was involved in that. And that involved a heavy kind of Latin American investment that started fading for me the first time I went to Europe. <laughs> I was expecting to hate it, and I really loved it. But Mexico in particular was never a melting pot. Uh, Mexico was, you know, very intense nationalism that emerged out of the Mexican Revolution and its war with the U.S. early before that and uh, the war against the French in the 1860s. So Mexico had a very strong sort of defensive nationalism which meant that its attitude wasn't really so deeply uh, one of deep assimilation. And um, I kind of thought, well, maybe that's a good thing. You know, I, uh, that way, you know I, I, I won't have to masquerade as anything because I know that I'll be able to be called out as uh, not 100% uh, Mexico, whatever the Mexican equivalent of kosher would be, and not 100%, uh, you know, sort of, uh, or the Mexican equivalent of true blue, uh, and so that kind of relaxed me a bit. I felt like I didn't really need to do so much to assimilate. And uh, curiously, the way things that happens that sometimes, as a result, I, I assimilated quite a lot. That is, I, you know, a few years ago, I, I took a Mexican nationality, um, but I, I live mostly in the U.S. And... Um, you know, now I've even been elected to something called the Colegio Nacional in Mexico, which is, you know, a huge honor, but also a, a form of acceptance, uh, you know, uh, that, that I would have never expected. So I feel that I have been very accepted in Mexico, but I don't think that I had a strong impulse to assimilate in the sense of sort of denying something the way that, let's say, a second generation immigrants in the U.S. classically do, right, where they they're no called no longer called Yosele. They're now Joe or whatever, you know that kind right. of thing. But say my father, I think, did feel much more of a push to try to assimilate and to blend than I did. I think there's been differences with my siblings, so it's kind of interesting. I don't think there's a single family. It's more like a, a shared problem than a shared solution. And just maybe to close, you know, when you're if you're following today at all immigration crisis and, you know, ideas of, of what the future may hold, you know, how does your own family story kind of influence the way you look at migration as we're facing it as a, as a crisis today? I mean, one thing that I think is very clear is that uh, migrants um, are often um, in some way asked to, to bear witness um, and in the process of bearing witness, to bear witness in a particular way, in a, in, in, in a way that confirms national prejudice or confirms national chauvinism. Um, migrants, for example, are interpreted as, here in the U.S., as, as seeking the American dream. And 
some way as confirming the reality of the American dream. And that's, that's a complicated role because, you know, for many people in the U.S., American-born, et cetera, the American dream is, you know, not always within reach. Uh, it's not always such a real thing. But for migrants, it's expected to be real. And that's something that you can see in my family history. That is, that the role, my family history is a role, uh, uh, is full of people who take on a kind of testimonial role. I wouldn't say exactly two-bit players, uh, because, but somewhat uh, stay long enough to, to really, you know, root themselves so strongly locally. And so as a result, they have this kind of role of, as witness. And I think that that's an important thing for us here in the U.S. to think about in terms of the immigration. What kind of burden do we place on the immigrant to legitimate what we call normal, uh, what the dominant society calls normal? That's one thing. Um, the other thing that, that I'd say, and you know, maybe this, this is um, enough in terms of this question here, but is that... Um, uh, my book does show, I think, that the influence, the cultural influence um, of immigration at, at the level of thought, at the level of, you know, even ideas about what might be possible in the host society is greater than is usually recognized. Um, um, for instance, this issue that you raised earlier about the connection between Jewish emancipation and native in, in indigenous emancipation in a place like Peru in the 1920s, um, that's something that actually is real. That is, uh, the Jewish experience did, in fact, inform deeply what this guy, Jose Carlos Mariategui, thought. And this guy, Jose Carlos Mariategui, is kind of the key nationalist ideologue of Peru uh, for the 20th century. I mean, it's not a small thing. Uh, so um, I think that the, the cultural influence, the, uh, the intellectual influence too, is often more subtle. It needs, you need to look at it more carefully to track it um, because it's not always declared. Um, it's not always even conscious. And I think that that's something we have yet to do. What is the cultural influence of Mexicans or Central Americans in the United States? What is the cultural influence of Chinese or what or Filipinos? We still haven't worked that out. And I, I hope that my family history can serve as a kind of example. I think it's certainly an example, too, of I don't know how your grandfather or grandmother felt at the end of their lives if they were resentful at all for what they had gone through, but um, just the richness of their experience and to pass through so many different places and languages and ways of being is just I mean it seems like a hard life but also like an in incredibly rich rewarding life as well yeah it was I they they weren't resentful actually they could have been but I I never heard that no. well thank you so much Claudio for speaking with us today oh thank you it's a real pleasure thanks we've been speaking with Claudio Lumnitz author of Nuestra America thanks for listening to the LARB radio hour Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. 
Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. Thank you.